love that line in that song. We lay down our cause so that our cross might be found in you. Everybody in this world has a cause. We need to have a cross. Well, we're in, uh, I think, the fifth message in the uh, series on Judges, and we're going to look at three freedom fighters. Uh, tonight, we're going to cover chapter three, and uh, since it's not a school night, we'll be through about 10:15. <laughs> Hope you all went to the restroom before you came in and uh, that you're ready. Have you ever noticed when you read the book of Judges that God delivered his people into the very hands of the people that they should have destroyed? God delivered his people into the hands of people that his people wouldn't deal with the way God told them to deal with them. In Judges, the people cry out for deliverance five or six times, and, and they make great promises to God. But Judges is really one of those books that shows us the cycle of sin and the cycle of history. Because give man long enough, and he will fall into this cycle over and over and over again because we never learn from history. And given freedom, we will typically over time begin to take it for granted and then abuse it and then lose it. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Having been in ministry a long time, I cannot count the number of tragic decisions that I've watched people make through the years that ended up in addictions and bondage because a believer would not drive out the enemy in their lives. An attitude, an action, an addiction. They wouldn't let it go. They kept it around the fringes. They kept it around the edges. It could be uh, envy or anger or bitterness or critical spirit or lust or love of money or longing for power. But the enemy got a foothold, and after he got a foothold, he got a stronghold, and after he got a stronghold, it became a lifestyle. I think there are three reasons for that. Um, nothing in your notes about this. I was just thinking about it. Uh, during house of prayer. I think one of the reasons why we're not willing to drive out the enemy is because we've forgotten what grace did for us. I think we've just forgotten. You know, we see somebody that gets saved out of a bad situation and we think, boy, that is, that's just grace. You know what? You got saved out of a bad situation. Amen. If you were seven years old in vacation Bible school, you got saved out of the same sin they got saved out of. They may have more scars than you, but it didn't cost Jesus any less to save us raised in the church than it cost him to save those that are outside the church. Secondly, I think ingratitude. I think we just become ungrateful for what God has done for us. We, we forget. Uh, this is not meant to pump up our pride in any way. 
but I'm, I'm not sure we fully understand how God has blessed us as a church. I'm not sure we fully get it. Tom Eliff will be in 50 plus churches this year. And he said to me this week, we were sitting on the front row after the service, and he said to me, he said, Michael, he said, I don't think you know what God is really doing here. And he said, the truth of the matter is, I hope you don't see it because you need to keep pressing that there's much more to Jesus than you're experiencing. It was a good reminder for me. But I don't want to be ungrateful for what God has done, but I also don't want to settle for what God has done. I want to keep pressing on toward the high calling of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I think we lose perspective. You know, we start looking at the world and say, man, look at what all they've got. Yeah, but look at what they don't have. You know, we look at what they've got. I mean, after all, I mean, let's just, let's just put it on the table, okay? It's just us. Let's just put it on the table. With all the money Donald Trump's got, you would think he could find a hairstylist that could do something for him. I mean, for the love of Pete, I could find 75 people in Albany, Georgia that could fix that for about $15. In fact, I would pay them 20 to fix it. You you just, you lose perspective. You look out there and you say, oh, they've got that and they've got this and their house is better than mine and their car is better than mine. And, And you lose perspective and forget that the poorest member of this church eats more and has more than billions of people around this world. Millions of people will die of starvation in this world this year. Millions upon millions, most of them children. I think you can lose perspective. And I think you always go to the enemy for your source when you lose your joy. When you lose the joy of fellowship with God. Now, now before we go any further, let me just ask a question. Is there an area in your life, is there an area in my life where we have not yielded or driven out the enemy? Because if there is, eventually, not dealt with, we will end up in bondage to that thing. We can't play with it. We can't toy with it. We can't marginalize it, put it over here to the side and just deal with it every now and then. We have to deal with it. That's why dying to self is so important. Now, these people and judges professed to be people of God, but they were carnal and, and disobedient. Uh, the majority of the people in the United States say they believe in God, but you wouldn't know it by the way we act. By the way, in case you don't know this, in case you've not studied it, one of the reasons that Muslims hate us and want to destroy America and put our cities into waste and destruction is because of our entertainment. They call us infidels, and I say we're infidels. I agree with them. You watch television in prime time where God's name is used in vain, where there is partial nudity, 
at times when children are still awake, much less when they're in bed, and ask yourself the question, are we not an infidel nation? Because by the way, we buy the products from the people that sponsor those shows. And we turn them on and watch them. And we say, well, I can, I can segment that in my life. Can your children walking through the house segment that? Can they figure out which is good and bad and what you approve of and don't approve of? I mean, you, you look at what we turn out in entertainment in this country, no wonder we're under judgment. And so God raises up 12 men and one woman who are called judges. Now, they're not judges like Judge Judy. Uh, I, I kind of look at these guys as like Wyatt Earp and Tombstone. Tell them judgment's coming. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I just see a guy in a big old, I've always wanted one of those coats, one of those big old long western dusters. You know, I, I'd wear a big hat, no cattle, but I mean, I just... You know, I've always wanted one of those long coats because I, I love, you know, Kirk Russell looks a lot like my brother-in-law when he had a mustache. And I always just thought, you know, I'd just like one time to go out west and just get in a shoot 'em up with somebody. I mean, just, I don't know. I, you know, Matt Dillon always won. I figured maybe I got a chance. But these judges were more uh, people who brought order they were deliverers. Judges chapter 2 and verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. And <laughs> they didn't even listen to the people that delivered them. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. And they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Now, I read that last part real quick because I wanted to see if you got it and you might not have. So let me take you back to it. Look at verse 18. The Lord was with the judge. It does not say the Lord was with the people. Now they're crying out. They're begging God for deliverance. It doesn't say the Lord was with the people. It says the Lord was with the judge. You see, God just needs a man or a woman that he can trust so that he can use them to deliver his people. Not only that, the, the Lord was with the judge. It was on the side of the judge. The question is not, today is the Lord with us. The question really for us is, are we with him? Because I, I just have a holy hunch that a lot of the church in America is not with the Lord. We have names and we have signs and we have buildings but I don't know that we're seeking after the Lord and the things of God and the ways that he desires that we seek after him. Judges chapter 3 and verse 9. Now remember, they were moved to pity. He, God was moved to pity by their groaning in chapter, that's in verse 18 of chapter 2. In chapter 3 and verse 9, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. 
Now, to cry to, that, that's not a word. It's important that you note this somewhere in your Bible or somewhere. This is not a word of repentance. The Hebrew word here is not a word that means repentance. It is a cry of anguish and distress because of oppression. But it's not a cry of repentance. In other words, they're just crying out to God because they're feeling the pressure. They're not crying out to God because they really, really want to change. So it's surface. It's emotional. It's hit their pocketbook. It's hit their lifestyle. It's hit their whims. And they're crying out to him in, in deep distress and in a cry of anguish, but there's not repentance. It's just their misery and their pain. Now, here's what's amazing about God. This is why I know I'm not God. God was moved by their misery, not by their repentance. Now, think about it. It moved the heart of God to do something for his people because of the misery and the pain that they had gotten themselves into. It's just another reminder that God is a God of grace and mercy, and he longs for people who cry to him and call out to him. Uh, they didn't even get to what they really needed to be praying about and crying out to God about, but God was moved because of their distress, although they were not moved because of their depravity. You see, I, I, don't, I don't know if we're even in distress yet. I think we think we are. But I don't know if we're even in distress yet. I said uh, Tuesday morning at Refresh, that uh, prominent politician that I, I could give you his name, but then you'd know who he is, but a prominent politician, uh, I was privy to some information a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was asked what he thought would happen in this coming year. And he said, I don't think much will change because it's not bad enough yet in America. Now, when you consider the people that have taken themselves off of unemployment and have just given up, when those numbers run into about 20 or 21 percent of actual Americans unemployed, 23 million unemployed, when you take the fact that millions of Americans have lost their houses, when you take the fact that today gas is $3.71, it's gone up 32 cents since the 1st of August, when you take all of that to say that it's not bad enough for us yet just tells you how hard we really are as a nation. Just tells you how hard we are, how callous we've become. And I blame it on the pulpit and on the pew. I, I don't blame it on Washington. I don't blame it on politicians. I blame it on churches not preaching the Word of God without apology and calling people to repentance. Because we wouldn't be in this shape if we were what God had called us to be. So let me get off of that track and go to the first of the three judges we'll look at tonight. First of all, the right man at the right time, verses 7 through 11. Othniel, chapter 3 and verse 7, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, Asheroth is, you know what the Baals are. They're, 
the god of rain and fire and agriculture, but the Asheroth are wooden pillars or tree trunks that are worshipped as a dwelling place of a deity. Now, let me just tell you how silly this is. The next time somebody comes to your house to cut down a tree, just ask them to just leave it about three feet tall, just the trunk, and then go out there every day and pray to it. Take it offerings. Go show your kids that tree trunk. Kids, this is our God. He dwells here inside this pecan tree that's not here anymore. This trunk, that's our God. Now, that's what they were doing. They believed that God's dwelt in these portions of trees. They had forgotten the living God for dead wood. And they did it, notice it says, in the sight of the Lord. I love what Lewis Sperry Schaefer said, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Verse 8, Then the angel of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands. Now, long name. My friend Jay Strike says, when you come to a long name in the Bible, you just stop and you talk for a few minutes, and then you pick up after his name. <laughs> Kushan Rishthaim was the king of Mesopotamia. Now, because his name shows up three times in these verses, I'm just going to call him what his mom called him, Cushy. <laughs> My guess is as good as yours. Now, here's what his name means, and you ought to write this down. This is what they gave up God for. He sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishnaim, and the sons of Israel served him for eight years. His name means double wickedness. Double wickedness. Not wicked. He's doubly wicked. You take wicked and double it. That's what his name means. And God's anger was kindled. There is a place in the mercy of God and the grace of God for righteous indignation about sin. And there's a place for the church to hate sin, but love sinners. Verse 9, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Interesting, the family connection there. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And when he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushi, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed and the Lord had rest 40 years and Othniel died. Now, by this judge's name, if you don't have some notes in your Bible, you ought to write down uh, Joshua chapter 15 and Judges chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, because this man's name appears in those places. He was the one who led the attack against Debir and and so Othniel is not new to this judging business. Now, why did God use him? Based on Judge, Joshua 15 and Judges 1, 11 through 15, I think God used him because he had a proven track record. He had a proven track record. Remember, he's the first one. 
He's the first one God raises up in this bottom of this cycle of sin. He's first. So he had a proven track record. I mean, people would have looked at him and said, well, you know, we're wicked, but we, we can't see how God would choose him. Secondly, he was a man of courage. He wasn't afraid to take on a doubly wicked man. He was a man of courage. And thirdly, he was a man of faith. And the land had rest for 40 years. You realize because of one man, an entire generation rested from war and evil. One, just one. Then there's Ehud, the left-handed assassin in verses 12 through 31. Now this is a gruesome account. I mean, it, it could get really gory if I really got into the details of all of this. and It could be nasty and in fact, you could call chapter 3, verses 12 through 31 an R-rated section of Scripture if you were to film it because it is very bloody and violent. Now, let's just step back for a second. Some of you have not wanted your kids to see the passion of the Christ because it's too bloody but there's more blood in the video games you let them play than there is in the Passion of Christ. Hello. The rated M for mature. Why are you letting 10, 11, and 12, and 13, and 14-year-olds play those games? You know what they're learning? They're learning to slit throats, blow people up. That's a little different than playing Army when we were kids. And they're fantasizing about violence. Well, this is real violent. But God doesn't protect us because he says, you know, children are going to know that. By the way, have you ever thought about this? When God's people went to war, the children saw the after effects of it. You ever thought about that? That God's people, when they walked through the land of Canaan and fought those battles and killed all their enemies, and they killed the men, the women, the children, the livestock, and they killed everything, their children are going into those towns and starting to take residence and starting to live, and they're seeing all that blood and guts and gore. But they're not just seeing blood and guts and gore. Their parents have enough sense to say to them, this is what happens to people that defy our God. I realize our times are different, and I'm not getting, going to get into a bait on what your kids ought to see or ought not to see, but I can tell you this. Some of us protect our kids from things we shouldn't protect them from and let them see things that we shouldn't let them see. Don't protect them from the realities of the Word of God. The Word of God's not going to change because your little baby is sensitive. It says what it says. They need to see God as He is. Not God as you create him in your image to protect him from the hard truths of Scripture. That's where they learn. In Deuteronomy 6, when you're to teach the children what you have learned and when you walk with them and when you stand and when you sit at the gate, you're to teach them all of it. And that's tough. That's hard. But all of those were examples of how much God hates sin. And then you can take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden when your great-great-grandparents ate us out of that garden. And we're still paying the price for it. 
So, I'll move on. Verse 15, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for him, for them Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. <laughs> I'm a left-handed man. Now, it doesn't mean that he was, it wasn't, you know, you know, there are more left-handed people that are geniuses than there are right-handed people. There are also more left-handed people in insane asylums than <laughs> right percentage. What that means, it's pointed out that he's a left-handed man. As you see that he, he's, he gets that sword in the way he grabs it. He's a left-handed man because he was hindered in his right hand. His right hand was incapacitated or wounded or withered. It had been hurt in a battle, but something had happened to his right hand. And so he was incapable because the right hand is always a picture of the strong hand. He was incapable of using that with a weapon. So it points out that God used this left-handed man, this man hindered in his right hand. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him when, while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. His name means the strong man. Now here's a left-handed man who can't use his strong arm and his strong hand, but his name means the strong man. And, and God raises him up. Why? Because the evil tribes, three tribes had captured Jericho. Now remember, Jericho is the site of one of the great victories in the history of Israel. And they have captured Jericho, which is just rubbing it in their nose that they can't even defend Jericho. And God raises him up and he kills Eglon with a knife that is 18 inches long and he slams it into his body and it swallows up the knife all the way through to the handle. And this may be where we get the phrase, do you get the point? He didn't start by raising an army. He started by dealing with the head of the opposition. And then he raised an army while they were weak. Look at verse 27. And it came about when he had arrived, he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was in front of them. And he said to them, pursue them for the Lord has given your enemies and the, the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued 
that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Let me just give you a quick application. If anything is on the throne of our heart other than Jesus, it will ultimately kill us. If anything is on the throne of our heart other than Jesus, it will ultimately kill us. The king of Moab was sitting on the throne ruling over God's people, and he had to be dealt with. Now, before we move on to the last one, let me just remind you a little bit here. Sin has consequences for generations not just for the moment, but for generations. The Moabites came from Moab. Moab was the son of one of Lot's daughters who slept with him when he got drunk after they had escaped Sodom. So the problem of the Moabites came about when people God had delivered from the destruction of Sodom sinned. And here they are, generations later, dealing with the consequences of people that could see God's hand of destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah and went, the first thing they thought about is we're going to need children. And Lot slept with one of his daughters, and the Moabites came into being. Now, if Lot had yielded to the Lord, and he had not been influenced by Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe the Moabites wouldn't have been a problem. But you can go back even further. The descendants of Esau produced the Edomites. Esau didn't do things God's way. And so he had offspring that became the Edomites. And the Edomites gave birth to Amalek. So the three enemies that they're dealing with in the land, primary enemies they're dealing with in the land, are people that are there because God's people didn't do what God told them to do. In other words... The problem was the people of God, not obeying what God had told them to do. And all the problems were the result of Lot and of Esau, not doing things God's way. And then the last one is Shamgar. God uses a common man, chapter 3 and verse 31. He has one verse. You say, well, that guy's not very important. There's only one verse about him. Well, how many verses are about you in the Bible? I mean, he got one. I don't know who other, what other people were around, but I know about Shamgar. He got one. And by the way, there's a great little book that Jay Strack and Pat Williams wrote called The Secrets of Shamgar. And it's a, it's a pretty incredible little book, quick read, but it's, it's pulling that, that, person out and telling us some things about him. But I want you to look in chapter 3, verse 31. By the way, this probably happened during the lifetime of Ehud, but uh, verse 31, after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, this is interesting. 
you kind of miss it if you're just reading. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. God went outside the Hebrew people and found a judge. Shamgar is a Canaanite name. God found a Canaanite who was living in the land and he killed 600 Philistines. Now the Philistines are just now beginning to rise into power, into influence, and they will dog Israel all the way through the days of David and Solomon. But he he kills 600 of these. Uh, By the way, his father's name is the name of the Canaanite god of sex and war. So this is a guy that God raises up that obviously has not been raised in a Christian home, in a home of faith, in a home with strong influence. So Shamgar is a reminder to us that God uses people regardless of how they've been raised, regardless of their background, but when God gets a hold of them and when God gets in them, he does something in their lives that their ancestors would have never thought about and would have never dreamed of. Now, his weapon is an ox goad. It's a heavy spear-like instrument with a spike on one end to prod the cattle and a blade on the other to clear the plowshare out. And this one man kills 600 men of war. I want him on my fantasy football team. I mean, I want that guy. You know, that's the guy that, that's the guy you want to hang around because he knows how to take care of business. One man took care of 600. And it's important enough to God that God mentions him in the last verse of chapter 3. Now, what do we learn from these three judges? First of all, God uses all kinds of people. God uses all kinds of people. Aren't you glad? I mean, God uses all kinds of people. All kinds of gifts, personalities. We talked about that in the message this morning. God doesn't have a stereotype of who he uses. God uses the people who are available to him. Secondly, God uses people who trust him. That's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 40, verses 29 through 31. God uses people who trust him. The Lord was with them. It's the Lord that gave them that power. It's the Lord that gave them that strength. It's the Lord that put them in the leadership position. And then thirdly, God is looking for courageous people. Now you think about these men. You think about going into the king with a knife and knowing that there's a very good chance if this doesn't work out well that you're going to die before the king dies. You think about going before 600 Philistines and you think about the odds of you getting out of that. You better have courage. I mean, you better have courage. J. Hudson Taylor, in looking back on his ministry in the China Inland Mission, in 30 years, 600 people got involved as missionaries to China. And he said this, God is sufficient for God's work. God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough 
and then he uses him. So I want us to pray. And I want us to, uh, before we sing a, a final song, I want us to pray and I want to guide you in a prayer time in light of these three judges. We started the service with this. I want to end the service with this. First of all, I want you to pray for God to raise up a generation that walks with the Lord. You know what? There's, there's, there are some kids in our preschool right now and there's some kids in Kids Rock right now that may be some of the greatest leaders God ever raises up in the life of this church if he tarries. Pray for God to raise up leaders in our church. Maybe your child and you're going to have to give your child to the Lord and say that Lord it's my child is yours. I, I'm just a steward of their lives. They're yours. Then I want you to pray for God to raise up leaders in our city. I'm not talking about titles and offices. I'm talking about leaders, men and women of courage who will say the hard things and who will do the right things. You know, it's easy to read the paper and watch the news and gripe about our community, but if we prayed for our community as much as we gripe about it, it would probably be better. It's not going to get fixed by the squawk box and by letters to the editor and by griping. It's only going to be fixed when God's people cry out to God, God, send us leaders, courageous leaders, to our city and to our county. Pray that God would send courageous leaders to our region. You know, we sit around here and we suck our thumbs and have pity parties because we're not in Atlanta and we're south of Macon and nobody in Atlanta even knows southwest Georgia exists. Hey, God starts doing something here, they'll know we exist. God gets a hold of this region. They'll know we're here. They may not like everything they see, but they'll know it. What if God decides one of the ways he's going to turn the state of Georgia back around is to go to a bunch of country towns and raise up some unsuspected people to do mighty things for him? Pray for our state. You know, the lottery was going to fix all our education problems. That's worked out real well. Pray for our state. We need courageous leadership in our state. We need people that are not running for office, but running to God. Even if it costs them their office, they stand and do the right thing. Pray for our nation. Pray for our president and our vice president. Pray for whoever it's going to be in January. Pray for our congressmen and our senators. 
We can vote. We should. But what we really need to do is pray for God to meet them in the dark night and speak to their hearts. Maybe there's some politicians that need to see the handwriting on the wall like Nebuchadnezzar did and start looking to men of God saying, can you tell me what this means? Maybe God needs to put a Joseph in a prison somewhere so they come out of the prison and get into the palace and interpret the dreams. God's done it before. I don't know why he couldn't do it again. Pray for the nation of Israel. They kind of feel alone right now. Like we don't have their back. We've always had their back. They're in existence because Harry Truman said, we're going to have their back. They don't believe that anymore. They doubt if we are their friends. Now, most of the Jews that live in Israel today are not religious Jews. They're secular Jews. Many of them are atheists. They're Jewish by race only. But if I read my Bible correctly, there's coming a day when hundreds of thousands are going to come to Christ. That may be in our lifetime. We ought to pray for Israel. We are told in the scripture to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is the most fought over city in this world. Pray for Israel. Pray that God would raise up some people that he can use. We need a deliverer that the Lord is with, whether the people are repentant or not. We need a deliverer that the Lord is with. We need a deliverer that will stand regardless of what everybody thinks for what is right. We need deliverers across this land to say enough is enough. This has to stop. You realize that the overwhelming majority of the signers of the Constitution were graduates of Bible colleges or were ministers. And yet we have a Supreme Court justice that says today, if we were writing the Constitution, don't think we'd model it after that one. We've gotten smarter than our founders. And the people who risked their lives to come across the ocean from every tribe and tongue and nation to a land of hope and to religious freedom. And that freedom is being threatened. We need God to raise up people to stand in the gap. We need pastors to stand, lay people to stand. We need young people to stand, men and women to stand, children to stand. 
until God looks down and says, maybe I can trust that land with one more move of my spirit before I come back. It would be a tragedy if on our watch God sent judgment because we didn't do what we were supposed to do. It would be a tragedy if we missed God's best trying to walk in two worlds. We need to run to God. So, before we sing one song and then we're going to be dismissed, before we sing, I want you to draw a circle around yourself. And I want you to pray one simple prayer. Lord, use me as an instrument of deliverance in my circle of influence. Lord, use me as an instrument of deliverance in my circle of influence. Now, if you're serious, God's going to take you serious. And He's going to give you opportunities to draw the sword of the Spirit which cuts open the heart so that sin can be purged and cleansed and lives can be changed. Father, hear our prayers. You know our need. Use us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray.